Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're continuing through the book of Luke, and we've now come to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Now, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, then you've heard of the disciples. The term is used to refer to the first 12 followers of Christ whom he chose to build his ministry. Of course, except for Judas Iscariot, they became the apostles, the sent ones with special authority and power. In fact, several of them wrote most of the New Testament, Peter, John, Paul, to name a few. You may even be familiar with their extra-biblical stories, such as Peter's upside-down crucifixion or Thomas's martyrdom by spearing. Undoubtedly, you also know of the false follower that I've mentioned, Judas Iscariot, the devil's disciple, as I call him. Now, apart from these things, we've come in the book of Luke to the initial call of Jesus' first followers. This comes to us in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It tells us when Jesus called the first followers as his disciples. Now, while the disciples were apostles, and they're not apostles today because no one is qualified, per Acts 1, 22 through 24, we're still disciples as believers in Christ. Not apostles, but disciples. This then begs the question, what is a disciple? It is a pupil, a follower, a learner. It comes from the Greek word mathetes. So then, if you are truly converted, then you are a disciple, a pupil of Jesus. If that is so, and it is, we would do well to study the first disciples, learn from their mistakes, imitate their instructions, etc. Therefore, let us now consider Luke 5 as we see the first followers. Jesus calls his disciples. Now, if I had to title this message, it would be this, Saved to serve, Jesus calls his first followers. Saved to serve, Jesus calls his first followers. Because Jesus saved these men not to see it, but to serve, as we're going to see. Now, with that in mind, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were watching their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have told all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, praying, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. Verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, mark this, they forsook all and followed him. They forsook all and followed him. Preach to you on this subject from the text. Saved to serve, Jesus calls his first followers. Now the story is broken down into three sections, okay? First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see the scene. In verses 4 through 7, we see the sign. And in verses 8 through 11, the 
summons, the scene, the sign, and the summons. Number one, verses one through three, we see the scene. Our story begins with Luke telling us of Jesus preaching a sermon. So the first thing we note about this scene is its seaside setting. The scene takes place by the Sea of Galilee, or as Luke calls it, the Lake of Gennesaret. This famous body of water actually had three titles in that day, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and the Lake of Gennesaret. It was 13 miles long by 8 miles wide and sat about 680 feet below sea level. Although today it's mostly barren, in Jesus' day the sea hosted nine towns around its shores with each town estimated to have a minimum population of about 15,000. It was a bustling place to be. And so we have the seaside setting of the scene, which makes perfect sense considering that fish were a large part of the diet in Jesus' day in that area. Even till this day, fish are a staple, through, uh, though not like they were then. It's no wonder, as Jesus is preaching here, we see fishermen washing their nets after a long night of fish, fishing. Secondly, not only the seaside setting of the scene, but notice the scriptural schooling of the scene. This scene was marked by scriptural schooling, for the text reads, As the multitudes pressed about him to hear the word of God. And then in verse 3, he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. So this scene was marked by scriptural schooling. The people were enamored with his preaching. As has been earlier stated in Luke's gospel, he taught with power and authority. Unlike the religious deadheads of his day, whether they agreed with everything or not, these people were drawn to such a spiritual demonstration of power in this scriptural schooling, as I call it. Oh, I long for the days myself when the people of God become hungry for the Word of God. Instead of pining after programs or being enthusiastic over entertainment, I long for real revival when, like beggars for bread, God's beloved come begging for God's book. Is that not what happened here? The text says they pressed about him. That word pressed is a verb that means to put pressure, to literally lay on top of. They could not get close enough. They hung on to every word. Oh, that our church would be marked as a place of scriptural schooling where Christ is exalted and the church is edified. After all, a church that is alive is worth the drive. And so we see the scene in verses 1 through 3. We noted its seaside setting and we noted its scriptural schooling. But not only the scene, in verse 4 we see the sign. Now, what do I mean by the sign? Well, I'm referring to the miraculous event that takes place beginning in verse 4. Now, what about this sign? Well, first of all, this sign was supernatural. How so? Well, it was unusual. In that day and time, to be fishing in the manner they were fishing because the best fishing of Lake Gennesaret was at night from the shore. Yet now Jesus is telling them to go in the deep water, not the shore, but the deep water in the middle of the day, not at night in the middle of the day, which is the exact opposite of the common philosophy of fishermen in this context. Isn't that ironic? God's wisdom is often as foolishness to men. For example, God says a man ought to marry one woman and stay with her till death. Man says that's crazy. 
God's wisdom says give a tenth of your income to the Lord. Man says that's crazy. These are but a few examples of this paradigm we have of God's instruction and wisdom being often the exact opposite, and it almost always is, of what society says. So though the best fishing, if you study uh, Lake Gennesaret, was at night from the shore, and yet Jesus says, go in the middle of the day to the middle of the lake, to the deep water. And so this sign was supernatural because it went against conventional wisdom. You see, the central piece, uh, and so that being said, excuse me, however, though this went against every conventional piece of wisdom these career fishermen had, they obeyed. You see, that is the central piece of discipleship. A true disciple, that is a true convert to the Lord Jesus Christ, obeys his Lord's command. In fact, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And did not Samuel the prophet say unto Saul, Obedience is better than sacrifice. So Simon obeys Jesus. He says, Master, we've told all night and caught nothing. In other words, hey, Jesus, uh... You're supposed to fish at night from the shore. We did that. Nothing happened. Nevertheless, Simon says, at your word, I will let down the net. What happens next is miraculous. That's why I called it a sign. They begin to catch so many fish, even though they were doing that which was not normal. Deep water, middle of the day. Normal was supposed to be from the shore, middle of the night. And yet we see a supernatural sign. They caught more fish than they could handle, so much that the Bible tells us their nets begin to tear, and then their boats begin to sink from the weight of the fish. So this sign was supernatural, but it was not only supernatural. This sign was spiritually significant. How so? We'll read verse 8. When Peter saw it, saw what? Saw the sign. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The text says, saw it. He saw the sign. This sign was spiritually significant in Peter's life. That after fishing in the prime time and location, they caught nothing. Then Jesus tells them to go against conventional wisdom, and they caught more than they could handle. Simon did not see this as a coincidence. He saw it as a sign. He knew that something supernatural and spiritual had happened. And to him, especially as a Jew, it was significant. And he got saved. He confessed Jesus as Lord, not just with lip service, but genuine repentance. Where'd you get that, Pastor Will? In verse 5, he called him Master, coming from the Greek Ipostates, which means one who commands in the nautical sense, a boat captain. However, now, after seeing the sign, he calls him Kurios, that is Lord, which means supreme owner, and it is a title used by the Jews to refer to God. And the pagans used it to refer to their emperor and their little g, false god, so it's a divine title. So he went from simply recognizing Jesus' authority to submitting to his lordship. That's what happens when you really get saved. Many people, they recognize Jesus' authority. They say, oh yeah, he's the master. Yeah, we believe in Jesus. But they never submit to his lordship and call him Kyrios, Lord. That's what happens when you get saved. 
Paul said a slave of Christ. He is your owner, master, commander, Lord. His word is burned in your heart and it will be evidenced by obedience as we shall see in the next section. So this sign was spiritually significant for Peter because it brought Peter to realize his own sinfulness in light of the Lord's supremacy. Although Jesus is no longer on earth, he did leave a final sign. Did you know that? You say, I want to see a fish sign. No, and you won't either. For Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given unto them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What was that? Well, Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, and so the Son of Man was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, and then rose again. That's found in Matthew 16, if you need to fact check me. So we do have a final sign of the church age, of the new covenant, and that is the resurrection. And so just like this fish sign was supernatural and spiritually significant to Peter, and then it led him to realize his sinfulness in light of the Lord's supremacy, so to the final sign, the last sign, the greatest sign, the resurrection, was supernatural. And spiritually significant. It was supernatural because somebody's heart stopped beating and then it started beating three days later. That's impossible. That is a miracle. And it's spiritually significant because heroes, we too, shall rise again if you repent. The question then is this. As the sign that was displayed for Peter by Jesus was supernatural and spiritually significant in that it led to his salvation, have you examined the resurrection the supernatural and spiritual, spiritually significant sign that it is. It leads to salvation, for without the resurrection, there would be no salvation. Do not make the mistake of taking this text and going fishing. Rather, all signs were for the singular purpose to point to the final sign of the resurrection, thus proving the lordship of Christ, just as Peter confessed him to be Lord. How can I claim that all signs were really just to point to the final sign? Well, that's what the Bible says. Because in John 20, 30-31, John wrote, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All the signs were temporary and served to point to the ultimate and final sign, the resurrection, and its significance typified in Peter's experience. Luke has already foreshadowed the final ultimate sign in his book because back in Luke chapter 2, Simeon was prophesying over the life of Jesus, and he said that Jesus would be known for a sign, singular, which will be spoken against. And it was, the resurrection. We know the Sanhedrin did speak against that sign, and they tried to pay people to keep it quiet. So I ask you, have you submitted to the Savior in light of the sign, of which this whole fish sign was just a shadow, just a picture, just a precursor? Now, not only the scene and the sign, but then we come to verses 8 through 11 and we see the summons. You see, because Jesus does not save you to see it. He saves you to serve. When Peter got saved, Jesus didn't say, okay, man, see you later. Oh, no. Oh, no. He said, because you are saved now, 
follow me, become fishers of men. You were saved to serve Christ, not simply to sit. And there are so many people that miss that. So we see the scene, the sign, and now the summons. Our story ends with a summons. What do I mean by that? Well, we, we know what a summons is. It means a call to do something. So we need to note the source of the summons, the Savior. He is the one calling men. No man can come to the Father except the Spirit of God draws him. This principle is seen over and over in Scripture. Here it's displayed physically, although it was also true spiritually. So what of this summons in verses 8 through 11? Well, I want you to note that it was a summons from the Savior. Jesus called Peter and these men. That's how the Holy Spirit saves men and women today. You cannot come to Jesus unless the Spirit calls you, unless God himself, and Jesus is God, so it's correct to say it either way, summons you. So the summons was from the Savior. And if there's no conviction, there will be no conversion. <clears throat> Secondly, this summons was a summons to salvation. For one cannot serve the Savior unless he belongs to the Savior. That's why the story didn't start with Jesus telling them to follow him. It ended with him telling them to follow him because before you can follow him, you must put your faith in him. Follow me, Jesus said. That's why so many churches cannot get anything done without arguments and problems. And when they try to do something, there's no fruit because you cannot serve the Savior in the flesh. It must be done in the Spirit. And before any of that can be accomplished, you have to be saved yourself. Churches are filled today with lost church members. And if you cannot see that by simply opening your eyes to the condition of the church in America today, then I can't help you. Thirdly, this summons was a summons to service. Hence why I titled the message, Saved to Serve, Jesus Calls His First Followers. A summons to service. Let me go back and read verse 10 and 11. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Jesus told Simon, Andrew, James, and John that day that he would make them fishers or catchers of men, that is, evangelists for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, the commission and reasonable service of every child of God. We are to be actively involved in catching men, in winning souls to Christ. And so they did, because the text tells us what? They, first, they Peter, James, Andrew, John. They, plural, what'd they do? Forsook all and followed him. They obeyed. They were the first followers of Jesus. There were four and they were fishermen. That'll help you remember. The first four followers of Jesus were fishermen. It's a little uh, mnemonic, I guess, device to help you remember that. The first four followers of Jesus were fishermen who became fishers of men. This is the story of the Savior's first followers. The day he called his first four disciples by the Sea of Galilee. We noted the scene, its seaside setting, and its scriptural schooling. We noted the sign. It was supernatural, and it was spiritually significant. 
Then we noticed the summons. It was a summons from the Savior to salvation and to service. In conclusion, we must ask in our own hearts, are we truly disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we looked to the sign of His resurrection and submitted to His Lordship to receive salvation? Secondly, are we these then, as these men were, serving? As we saw, Jesus did not call them to salvation only but to service. He saves to serve, not to see it. In fact, that was the reason He saved them. And so they did. It was costly, but they considered the reward greater. What do I mean costly? Well, look at the last phrase. They forsook all. They left behind friends. They left behind family if they had to. Now, you're not supposed to abandon your wife and kids. That's not what he's saying because we know Peter was married. But they left behind anything that got in between them following Jesus. So in this instance, their jobs. They gave up their jobs. Because they followed him. My friend, disciples are saved to serve, not to see it. This is the story of when Jesus called his first four followers from being fishermen to being fishers of men. God bless you.